Hear now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast your name as cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Good morning. Beautiful outside today. It's full house today. Glad you're here. In his 1984 volume, The Intellectuals Speak Out About God, a collection in which 25 of the world's greatest scientists and philosophers of that time spoke out concerning their faith, Roy Abraham Varghese was privileged when one famous intellectual agreed to write the foreword to his book. Dated June 23, 1982, this American wrote, Our nation is in the grip of a crisis of moral decline. Our young people are bombarded daily with assaults on the fundamental values which shaped and sustained this nation. It is difficult to turn on a radio or television, read a newspaper, magazine, or popular book, or see a movie in a neighborhood theater that, has not, that does not find an attack on the ethics and moral values we have been taught to cherish. Great courage is needed to live a Christian life in today's society. We know that only God can give us the courage and the guidance we so boldly and badly need. We must always remember that we are created in God's image, that we will never be abandoned if we seek our solace and optimism in trust and in prayer. Signed, sincerely, do you know who that was? It was Ronald Reagan, 40th President of the United States. Even President Reagan was not oblivious to the great destruction being caused by man's rebellion against God and sin in our culture especially. The seeds of naturalism and humanism had been planted for many years uh, through that time, and uh, he was eyewitness to the great changes evidenced in our culture, such as the sexual revolution from the 60s through the 80s, and we're still eating of that fruit today. But this rebellion is not new. It wasn't new in the 60s. It has its roots in a garden over in the Mesopotamian Valley, in fact. But Jesus Christ emerged on the scene. And I use the word emerged because that's the way He's presented to us in the Gospel. He emerged. He came forth. He came forth as He proclaimed from the Father. He came forth into the world. He came forth and proclaimed with authority and power that men need to hit the reset button, if you will. To reset the worldview that they had, that had that had become so astray and, and so amiss, and his teaching was rather paradoxical, and a paradox is defined as a seemingly self-contradictory proposition that, when investigated or explained, may prove itself to be well-founded or true. It seems on the surface that this can't be so, this can't be right. This person is not correct, but when investigated, that is when sought out, when seekers look into things deeper, they might find that something proposed that sounds so wrong is rather paradoxical. That is, it actually is true. And this is how he presented the Sermon on the Mount. 
and uh, which is called in Luke the Sermon on the Plain. He found a, a level spot, if you will, uh, in Luke to teach his disciples. There were multitudes that were gathered to him. He had just called upon the twelve that he would train with this mindset, with this worldview that we're going to talk about, to go into all the world and, quote, hit the reset button of man's thinking, to take them back to the garden, to take them back to the understanding that was true, and that is still true today, that we need to be able to understand. But he lifted his eyes and he, and he talked to his disciples when he said this. If there's anything that is more perplexing or more grieving than a professing atheist who is denying God's sovereignty and rejecting its, His love, it's when Jesus' own disciples do so. It's when His own disciples diminish His power and deny His, his, his uh, saviorhood and degrade His wisdom and even reject His love through our lives in the presence of those who need to see this worldview being lived out among us. In his message on the mountain, found in more of an abridged form in Luke chapter 6, Jesus openly confronts the humanistic philosophies of men, which had also found their way into the hearts and minds of many of his disciples. The first thing that I want to propose to you is that Jesus reset eternity in the hearts of men again. Do you remember in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11 where Solomon, the wise man, wrote in that book that he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God has done from beginning to end. He set eternity in, in man's heart. But it's hard to know what God has done from beginning to end. I propose to you that Jesus Christ emerged to both reset the idea of eternity in man's heart in that time of spiritual thirst in the world. At just the, the fulfillment of the right time, God sent Him to reset that thinking for all times, but also to reveal what God has been doing from beginning to end. How could we know unless it was revealed to us? And so Jesus came from the Father and gave us that which only He could give. John said in, in chapter 1, verse 18, after He presented Him as the Word who became flesh, that He came to exegete. The Father is the Greek word there. You know, when we read and study, we try to exegete. We try to take the meaning of the, the words of the Bible or any other thing, and we try to understand their proper meaning and pull out of that the right interpretation. And Jesus said, I want to do that for you by exegeting who the Father is and exposing you to that. Listen to the contrast as He rekindles their flame of eternity, which it had been snuffed out, and reveals to us what man cannot find out, except it be that Christ reveals it. I want to read to you today from Kenneth Woost's translation. It's different. It's different. What Woost tries to do, and I've read to you from it before, is he takes the 
meaning of the Greek to the best of his ability and scholarly ability and presents it to you in the fullness. It's not easily readable, although you might find it to be um, rather enlightening in most cases, or I wouldn't choose to read it to you. It's not meant for our easy-to-read ability. <laughs> it is meant to pull out everything that's meant in these words and give them to you. So I want to read out of this today through Luke chapter 6, if you don't mind. Now listen to how he sets up the contrast between the here and now and the eternity and, and resets man's mind forward thinking and upward thinking. I'll begin in verse 17 of Luke 6. And having gone down with them, he stood on a level place, and a great crowd of his pupils, and a large multitude of the people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoasts of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being healed. And the entire crowd was constantly seeking to be touching him because power from His presence was constantly going forth and was healing all. And He Himself, having lifted up His eyes on His disciples, that's important, on His disciples, those who were seeking to know, His learners. And that's what that word disciple means, remember, a learner first. He was saying to them, Spiritually prosperous are the poor, because yours is the kingdom of God. Spiritually prosperous are those who are hungering now, because your desire shall be satisfied. Spiritually prosperous are those who are now weeping audibly, because you shall laugh. Spiritually prosperous are you when men shall hate you and snub you as a disreputable character, and revile you and contemptuously reject your name as pernicious on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same manner their fathers were in the habit of doing to the prophets. And then he turns in more of a negative light. After speaking in, a, in the positive, blessed are you, or spiritually prosperous are you, he turns and he says, now woe to you, but woe to you who are abounding in material resources, because you have that solace and cheer which comes from a prosperous state of things and have nothing left to desire. Woe to you who are satisfied now, because you shall hunger. Woe to you who are laughing now, because you shall mourn and weep audibly. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same manner their fathers were accustomed to doing to the false prophets. And then he turns and gives the divine directives. This is how the gospel that he is presenting here, the good news of the kingdom that he's been preaching, as he turns people's minds upward and gives them hope that there's good news for you, he also says, this is how it looks when your light so shines among men, as Matthew recorded. This is how it looks in your daily life. Now, this is still something that you need to take personally today, as I do, and apply to the specifics of my life. But generally, he turns and he says in verses 29 through, uh, excuse me, 27 through 39, these directives... 
But I am saying to you who are hearing me, be loving your enemies with a divine and sacrificial love. Be handsomely and fairly doing good to those who are hating you. Why? Because it's the more excellent way, the way of love. Do you remember Paul in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 13? Yet I'll show you a more excellent way than this power even that you've been given from the Holy Spirit. I'll show you something more lasting, something more powerful, something more eternal than this. And that's when he got into that great chapter we call the chapter of love. 1 Corinthians 13, love is, love does. The enemies of God, church, disciples, the enemies of God, the enemies of you, need you to do this more than anybody needs it. They need it the most. We tend to feel that they're the most undeserving. Right, that's right. That's why these are paradoxical statements. It doesn't seem so. It doesn't seem like he, God would ask us to do this. It doesn't, seem, it doesn't seem like it would avail anything to do this. And Jesus said, I'm teaching you the more excellent and powerful way to live your life, to shine your light, and to be like God. He says then in the next verse, Be invoking blessings upon those who are calling down curses on you. Be praying for those who are treating you abusively. Do you want to spend your time doing something useful? Rather than blessing and cursing, as James said in chapter 3, out both sides of your mouth. Do you want to do something useful? The time that you would spend griping, complaining, whining, calling down curses, verbally or in your mind, upon those people. Bow down and pray that God will touch their hearts with the gospel. What a wonderful thing. It's happened. It's happened. Paul wrote to the Romans, and he said, overcome evil with good. And he said, it'll be like pouring hot coals upon their consciences. They won't be able to handle the fact that doing, knowing, knowingly doing wrong to you, that you have turned and done good to them. They'll rethink their lives. That's what happened when people came into confrontation with Jesus. When you came into contact with Jesus, you walked away reflecting inwardly upon yourself. He always turned the thoughts to the inward man. In verse 29, he said, To the one who is striking you upon the jaw, be offering him also the other side of your jaw. And from the one who takes away your outer garment, do not even withhold your undergarment. Why scratch and claw and bite and kick and fight? As if you've not placed your life in God's hands. That's what it appears, you know. That's what it appears when we act in such a way that it is up to us, entirely up to us, to defend our character. To, to protect our image, to save our reputation. Heaven forbid somebody think ill of me. What we're saying is, my life is not in the hands of a God. I am going to fight you tooth and nail for what you said to me. And it doesn't invoke any trust in God at all. Not upon your part or upon those who are near you. 
And so he says, when you're insulted for my name's sake, or you're struck for me, turn your cheek and let him offer to let them hit the other side. What a lesson that teaches about God. You know, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in the second letter, first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, verses 5-9, through and he said, through your patient endurance of persecutions, you have made known the manifest judgment of God, the manifest righteousness and judgment of God. What you say to people when you take persecution, which Peter said is more noble taking it for doing good than for when you do evil, you're expected to, to, to be persecuted for doing evil, punished for doing evil. But when you do good and receive it, he said that is commendable before God. Paul said, people look at you and they say, they act like we're in trouble with someone else, not them. They're acting as if someone else has control of this matter and will avenge them. And it causes men to think in fear to look to God. And so Jesus is teaching us how to, to live our lives in a way that shows the love of God the fear of God, a trust in God, he goes on and he says this profound thing, this thing which we have such difficulty with so often. He says, keep on giving. Now the most English translations say give, but the Greek tense there is keep on giving to everyone who keeps on asking you. And from the one who takes away the things you possess, Stop asking for the return. Mm. I think he's saying, give like it's your gain, not your loss. Let me emphasize a couple of different words. Give like it's your gain, not your loss. You can place the meaning depending on the emphasis of those words. Give! Like it's your gain, not your loss. How powerful. Do you think about it that way? Do we think that God cannot supply all things sufficiently for us for every good work? 2 Thessalonians or 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9, 10, and 11. God will supply you for every good work. God will even supply you if someone steals from you. Yes, there's such a thing as justice. Yes, there's such a thing as law. Yes, there are times when you may press charges. Yes, there are times when you ought to defend. But Jesus is saying here, as far as I'm concerned, as far as you're concerned, as a Christian, what message are you showing to people by the way you respond to the way they treat you? And so He goes on to say in verse 30, and 31, give to everyone, but then he says the golden rule, and even as you are desiring that men should be doing to you, yes, you wish, you wish men would treat you well, he said, be doing in the same way to them. Do the hard thing. Listen to verses 32 through 35. Here's the hard thing. And assuming that you are loving those who are loving you, what sort of a recompense is yours? 
for even sinners considered as a class of individuals, also are in the habit of loving those who are loving them. In fact, if you are doing good to those who are doing good to you, what kind of graciousness is yours? Even sinners considered as a class of individuals are constantly doing the same. And if you lend money at interest to those from whom you hope to receive, what kind of graciousness is this? Even sinners are in the habit of lending money at interest to sinners in order that they may get back the equivalents. But be loving your enemies and be doing good and be lending money at interest, despairing of no one's ability to pay back the loan with interest, and your reward shall be great. And you shall be sons of the Most High, because He Himself is benevolent to those who are ungrateful and those who are pernicious." those who are users, those who take advantage, God still feeds them. (laughs) He still allows them to be fed and clothed. He still demands that they're treated with respect. You see, what we're trying to do is adapt God's mindset, look at the, the world through His view, and He desires that all men everywhere be saved. And my part in that is to come alongside Him as an ambassador, as an advocate of God, and to help them see the greatest, most clear portrayal of my God that I myself have seen, because He has been merciful to me. When I'm a user, when I'm a sinner, when I'm a thief, when I'm cursing men, and all of the above, when I'm hateful, just when I'm hate, when I'm unthankful, He has continued to stick with me through all these things. Matt, I want you to show people that through your life. It's hard to argue with these words when you realize that you yourself are the recipient of the gospel. It's really hard to argue. I mean, you can make a lot of excuses. We can give a lot of scenarios of which, well, I wouldn't do it if. Well, but what if this happened? Yeah, but we can do that all day long. I'm the king of that. And I'm telling you here that he wants us to portray a true image of our great God by doing the hard thing. Then he sets before them a parable in verse 39. And he says, In this illustration, a blind person is not able to be leading a blind person, is he? Will not both surely fall into the ditch? That begs a question, doesn't it? Jesus, who's blind and who sees? And he's proposing that I see. And I'm trying to teach you to see. I'm leading you along the way to see and to know where you're going and how to get there. That's Jesus, but it's also you and me, leading those who cannot see. By these, we'll draw near to Jesus, but also others will draw near to Him through us. And so I point out this third thing, not only that Jesus has set eternity in men's hearts, and that this kind of life requires great courage, 
but that Jesus laid the foundation under our feet with the gospel. Have you ever, or maybe I should say have you recently, because we all probably have, have you ever stood up on something which required your balance? Or when's the last time you did? When's the last time you did that? You know, when we want to keep stability, we tend to look down, right? It always amazes me how when I'm up somewhere high, someone says, don't look down. Well, when you look up, you lose your balance. You know, looking at the ground is how you have depth perception and you kind of, when you just look up in the sky, you tend to just go like this, don't you? That's how people fall off ladders, reaching for things, stand on a stool. My little nephew last night, he came down, he brought some donuts yesterday down. Last night he wanted one before he went home and we had put, put them up on the refrigerator. He said, can I get one? I had my hands kind of messy in the kitchen. I said, grab that chair right there and he grabbed it. He's jumping up there. I said, hold on to the refrigerator handle while you get up there, you know, because I, I just could see him just, just, just diving up there and going, wham, back. We need our feet both planted firmly, and we need to have perspective before we can expect to look up. And so what Christ has done for us is has given us a way to plant both feet firmly before he would expect us to look up. One foot is planted in his life, and one foot is planted in his death. The one foot that's planted in his life is looking at his life where he is confirming his words of promise by the miracles which he's performing, which are for the sole purpose of producing faith in men's hearts that they can trust His words about the correct view of the world and about the impending day of judgment, about, about the salvation that is theirs if they believe in Him as the Son of God. We, we tend to look at His life and see then how we can live. But in His death, we place our other foot. In His death and resurrection, in the Gospel, we place our lives in both of these things. But that resurrection is what is set forth as the, the capstone of our faith. It's not only the foundation, it's the icing. It's the final power of God that He showed through the life of Christ and His death that, that weekend by raising Him from the dead. A mystery that still is calling out to men everywhere. Have you noticed, by the way, there's a movie coming out focusing on the Roman centurion who is going about searching for the body of Jesus? Yes, there's another movie coming out. It kind of makes me nervous too. But the point of it is well taken. This man, I think, through his searching and coming up empty-handed with the body of Jesus, comes to faith. Well, that's been playing out for centuries. That's playing out in my life. It's because He's alive. My other foot's on that resurrection. And when you have both feet planted in that apologetic of, of the, the confirmation, the evidence of our faith, we can look up confidently and winds don't shake us. And as Jesus began to say here at the end of this sermon, 
that the storms of life won't shake you off. They won't rock your foundation. Your feet are not only planted, they're planted deep on a rock foundation. And so, he finishes that great sermon by saying, but why are you calling me Lord, Lord, and are not doing the things which I'm saying? Why is that? Now that doesn't make sense. If you all have seen the power of God through me, if you've all seen the compassion of God through my work, if you all recognize that I am from God and of God, and I'm saying to you that this is the true way to look at life, why are you listening to me but, but not really listening to me? Why are you following me but you're not doing the things which I say? Now that's a good question. That's unreasonable, church. That's unreasonable. And he says... Everyone who comes to me and is hearing my words and is putting them into practice, I'll show you whom he is like. He's like a man who's building a house who dug and went deep and laid a foundation upon the solid rock. And a flood having come, the river dashed against that house. It was strong enough. Uh, it was not strong enough to shake it because it was built securely. But he who heard and did not do is like a man who built a house upon the ground without a foundation against which the river dashed and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. And so we put our hands in the life and death of Jesus. I appreciate the quote that Anthony shared in his class this morning, which said, Jesus lived the life which we're supposed to live. He died the death which we deserved to die. And by His mercy, we escape the wrath of God through His death. And by grace, we receive the righteousness of God through Christ's life. When, when we choose to trust in His life and death and not our own. Jesus wants us to reset our thinking from ourselves to God, from, from here in the temporal to the eternal, from the physical and material to the spiritual. And if you believe that He is Lord and you believe that He's Savior, why hearing would you not do the things that He asks? Let's reset. Let's refocus. Let's be restored to our God that we might be partakers of the Gospel with Him. And Jesus said, this is the nature of the Kingdom of God and the true joy of it. If we can help you in any way to be right with your God today, you can come and let us know as we sing this song.